Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church. Uh, as you can tell, I am not at the Wilder Center this morning with the rest of the worship team or ministry team. Uh, I would love to be, but unfortunately, uh, our family has had a stomach virus going through the family here this weekend, and we thought it would be the wisest for me to record the sermon and have it shared live. I uh, wish I could be there in person, but yeah, I am at home like everybody else. Now, if you are joining us for the first time, or if you've been in and out on the series at all, we are going through the book of Ezekiel this fall and into the winter. And the book of Ezekiel is really a tremendous book, giving this overarching narrative of Israel's history, of God's promises to them as a people, of God's punishment for their sin, and of this hope of future restoration. And as a book, it really is written to Israel in the exile and after the exile, and it's really written to a people then who are really coming to grips with their circumstances, a people that are really going through a reckoning, who know the promises of God, who have heard the promises, these promises that God gave that they would be a great nation, that they would have this king and kingdom that would never end, that they would be a nation that would be a blessing to the whole world, but then what they have experienced and what they see is not that. Instead, their kingdom collapses. They lost everything and were taken away into exile into a foreign land. And then they look around and say, where is this kingdom? Where is this king? Where are God's promises? But then still hearing the echoes of God's future promise that one day that kingdom will be established. So the book of Ezekiel is really written towards a generation of Israel that is really dealing with great amount of loss and dealing with this col collapse of culture and society around them and trying to reconcile themselves into that story. Where are they in terms of God's promises? Where are they in terms of world history? What does it mean to live in this world, to be in a place that's not their home, to long for a true and right kingdom, and also to honestly be able to look back at the past and to see sin and God's punishment in it. It really is written to a people that are trying to make sense of their world and trying to make sense of their lives, really coming to grips with what does it mean to live in a world that is full of sin and yet still full of hope. In many ways, the book of Ezekiel, and this is why we picked it as a church to go through and work through this fall, feels especially right for our present moment as a culture and as a church here in America right now, where it, we don't feel at home. We do feel in exile. We can look around and see God's common grace and his goodness and provision, his abundance given to us, just like Israel could look around Babylon and see the same, how God cared for them and provided for them in their captivity, in exile, and allowed them to flourish. Yet they can also look around and see the consequences of generations of sin, and they can see how things are not the way that they should be or haven't been the way that they should be and still long for and hope 
and work towards a future that is to come. And so Ezekiel helps us to provide a lens and a way in which we can interpret the world around us. For Ezekiel, he really was calling out a people to take stock, to take stock of their history, of what has happened to them in the past, to look at their current lives now, and to put their hope in the future, in this future kingdom that God was ultimately building, which is also true for us. That really, as a culture and as a church right now, we're also in this time of a reckoning, of really coming to grips with who we are as a country, who we are as people, who we are as families, as a church. What is it that we are called to? What have we been guilty of? What do we need to be doing going forward? And where ultimately is going to be our hope found? In this chapter of Ezekiel that was read right before here in Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel highlights one of the reasons for the ultimate collapse of Israel and of God's judgment upon them. And one of those was this taking advantage of the poor and the oppressed. And this is going to become one of the great sins of Israel over the generations and generations as a people. They will always take advantage of the poor and of the oppressed. And as Ezekiel describes it, the princes of Israel, each one of them, according to his power, takes advantage of the poor, takes advantage of the oppressed. The father and the mother are treated with contempt. The sojourner suffers extortion. The fatherless and the widow are wronged. It's this picture of the leaders of Israel systemically taking advantage of those who they were supposed to be caring for. And it seems that the only thing that limited them at all in their taking advantage of others was the various degrees of their own power. The more power, the more they took advantage. The less power, the less they took advantage. That they had a country, and as a country, they systemically worked against those that they were to take care of. That those who were supposed to be treated with kindness and with mercy we're not. And the sojourner, the traveler, those who came to the land looking for refuge, looking for a home, looking for peace, instead were extorted, right? Were taken advantage of, were demanded upon. Their money was taken, their goods were taken, they were forced into labor, they were enslaved. They didn't find what they should have found when they came into the nation of Israel. That this collapse of their country and this judgment of God against them was in large part due to how they treated the powerless amongst them. Which, again, if you know the scope of Scripture, it, that goes completely against God's law that he had given them and God's very character itself. They were a people, right? This is how it begins in Genesis. They were a people who were poor and oppressed and had no hope. 
they were a people who were enslaved by a more powerful nation and by kings who were afraid and who used them and extorted them for labor and for goods, who killed their infants to keep them under control. They were a people who experienced that hardship. And they were a people who continued to experience it. Even when they got into the land, they experienced continued enslavement and oppression by outside people as they tried to make their own country and their own families and, and nation of their own. They know what it's like to experience this. And as God gave them his law and showed them how he has hope for them as a nation, he, he gives them this picture, especially through Leviticus and through the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, that they were to be a nation unlike all the other nations. They were not to treat the sojourner, the traveler, the outsider, the oppressed, the needy, the widow, any of these people this way, but rather were to show them generosity and mercy, were to love their neighbor, was to show this kindness, was to be this light unto the world, was to be a blessing to all the nations through how they would be a nation that would be safe, that would be a place of peace, a place of shalom. But Israel's history does not look that way. But Ezekiel goes on in the chapter to point out that it was not just the leaders who were guilty of this sin, of taking advantage of the poor, of taking advantage of the oppressed, taking advantage, advantage of the needy. But rather, Ezekiel says, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery, oppressed the poor and the needy, and extorted from the sojourner without justice. It's one thing if it's just a leader or two or three or one family of monarchs who are guilty. Ezekiel is saying all of the people are guilty of the same crime. Everyone oppressed whomever they could oppress. If they had power over someone, they took advantage of that power and they extorted the weak. They took from the sojourner without any justice. Because that sojourner, the one who is in this land, has no hope. They have no magistrates of their own. They have no elders to go to. They have the, there is no legal system for them. They are not citizens of this land. Rather, they're at the mercy of the citizens of that land. They're at the mercy of the rulers, and they find no justice. All of Israel is guilty of the crime. As a people, they oppressed. They went from being a persecuted minority group that was ultimately redeemed by God's grace and love that they didn't deserve and became oppressors themselves and failed to show that same love and mercy and kindness that they received from God. And this unfortunately is this inevitable arc of human history. Right? You don't have to be a great student 
of world history to see this. But there is always that small persecuted minority group until they come to power, then they become the oppressor and start to oppress another group until that group finds power and then they oppress in turn another group. But there's that constant cycle of oppression and liberation and oppression and liberation. It's as if there's something wrong with human hearts, that the moment we get power, the moment we have power over somebody else, we will use that power and we will extort and take. And as individuals, we have that in us. Then as a culture, that begins to develop. And then our systems and our governments do the same. We protect certain people and we fail to protect others. Or worse, systemically oppress others and take away rights out of fear or out of the need for security or out of economic benefits, whatever the reasons are we will turn and we will oppress others. It's the arc of human history. It's certainly been the arc of American history, um, right? We've seen that throughout our history. America is a, is, a, is a country of the oppressed who find freedom, but then who find out very quickly that they have become the oppressors again. And then they give freedom to that other oppressed group. And then again, and again, and again, it's really is what makes America so unique is that there's always been that recognition and that need for bringing justice, trying to find out where we have wronged others and to try to make amends, to try to bring to light, um, because that's the, the path and the history that we're on. And the question becomes, you know, how are we supposed to respond to those types of truths? How are we supposed to respond to that type of condemnation that Ezekiel gives to Israel? That we as a nation or as a church can look at our own history as well and say, wow, we have not taken care of the oppressed as well as we were supposed to. We are just as guilty as our leaders. We are just as guilty as everyone else. We have the same issues in our own hearts. We have the same predilection to oppress and to extort. So what? What are we to do? Especially Israel in exile, right? They hear this from Ezekiel and it's, well, what do you want from us, Ezekiel? We've been punished. We are not in the land. And especially when you're not the generation that did the crimes. This generation that Ezekiel is speaking to is not the generation that lived in Israel. Ezekiel was a, was a, was a teenager when he was taken away. You, know, you have a whole generation that's growing up in the exile that didn't know Israel. They didn't know what it was like. Certainly, they don't have the same um, guilt when it comes to the things that Israel did. And now they find themselves in Babylon and Ezekiel is telling them of all of the sins of their nation and themselves and their parents. And so what are they to do? What are we to do in the face of sin and its consequences, especially when it's been hundreds of years of systemic sins and their consequences? How are we to react? What are we to do? Well, 
I think we see a couple of primary responses that our culture provides for us uh, that would certainly have been true then and true now. The first one, and it's a very powerful one, is to blame past generations for sin. In Ezekiel's time, that's what they certainly did. They said, this was, we are suffering now because of the sins of our fathers and our grandfathers. Let's blame them for what we've encountering now. In fact, we will identify them, we will condemn them, we will glorify those sins even and make them sound even worse than they actually were. This is also what's happening in our culture today, where you can you see where we are now, okay? You can see, you feel the weight of the sin. And so someone has to be responsible for this. So you find people to be responsible. And you look back through history and you start weighing out guilt. And you give it out freely. And you try to find as many people as possible who can be responsible. For Israel, it was everybody. It was the whole generations prior. They were all bad. They were all guilty of these sins. And that's why we're encountering this today. It's much the same now, too. For many, look back, in, back at history and say, look, everyone was this way. Everyone is guilty. We need to eliminate that. We need to condemn it. We need to uh, really make it clear how bad it was and how horrible it was and what all of these terrible sins were that were done by past generations and make sure that we have recognized it. Now, that comes from a profound desire to deal with sin and with the weight of that sin. Um, and it's uh, because it's uncomfortable to sit underneath the reality of our world that we're in and of the present state. And you want to find someone to blame. Someone has to take responsibility. Who is going to be responsible? And so you look. And the past generations are easy to look at and to blame for the current situation. The other response Israel took, which is one we take today as well, is to excuse and ignore past behaviors. And to say, you look back and you say, you know what? Israel did the best that they could. They were products of their time and of their culture. This is just the way it works, right? If you're trying to build a nation, you're going to end up creating oppressed people. It just goes along with it. You know what, if you're, we're going to carve out a land for ourselves, we're also going to have to enslave some people along the way. You know, this, if we're going to have security, if we're going to create bigger, stronger borders as in land, there's going to be some persecution and some hurt that's going to come from that. You know, if we're going to have a thriving economy, I mean, this is just what happens. This is what comes along with it. In the same way, much of our culture responds to the injustices that we see historically into our present situation and excuses and ignores it as well. Where you look back at history again and you say, well, you know, everybody, everybody had that view at that time. You know, everybody was like that. It, it's not fair to say that that was wrong. That was just a product and a cultural issue at the time. That's just the way it was. It's, you know, who's to say if we were there, we'd be doing anything different. 
Right, but so you really try to minimize sin and you really try to minimize the problems. Now, in both of these positions, right, there is this real desire to make yourself justified for self-righteousness. On the one hand, that desire to find fault and to find those who are at fault, to blame the systems, to blame the people, to find the culprits, and to kind of root it out and to find those solutions. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a, that's a natural and normal desire. But oftentimes, it speaks to our self-righteousness so much that if I can find the faults everywhere else, I don't have to take responsibility myself, right? I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is be on the right side of the issues. All I have to do is to make sure that I have done the right things, gone to the right rallies, put the right signs up, liked the right posts, right? I'm one of the right people. I know what is going on. I know what the problems are. I've read the right literature and I can give the right answers. Ultimately, it just breeds this self-righteousness. Now, the other response of ignoring and excusing also does the same thing. I don't want to be, have to take a hard look at my own history, at my culture, because I'm connected to that culture. And if that culture is wrong, well, then you're saying there's something wrong with me. I'm not going to take responsibility for things that were done long ago. That's for them, and that's in the past. And things aren't really as bad as everyone wants to make them out to be. Ultimately, I'm in the right side of history here. I'm not overreacting. I'm, in fact, making sure that I'm fighting the good fight for truth. And I'm making sure that everybody knows the reality of things and that this overreaction is an overreaction, and that I am on this right side. Again, both groups, both reactions, ultimately come down to and are breeding this self-righteousness of I'm in the right. I'm in the right in terms of I'm taking all the right actions or I'm on the right side and making sure that the problems are identified and the solutions are being worked towards, or I'm on the right side here that also recognizes all of this is an overreaction and everything is going to be fine. But ultimately, both sides, right, there's this deep desire to be justified, to be righteous in it, that what's being talked about can't actually deal with me right now. And that was the situation for Ezekiel that he had. He had a whole generation of Israelites who were sliding into apathy, right? Who had heard God's promises and who knew that God was still promising good. But today is just today, living in Babylon, disconnected from those promises. I'm just going to put my head down and do the best that I can and and what more do you expect of me? 
But what he's calling Israel to do is to reckon with their sins, to come to grips with the reality of the way the world is, and to come to grips and to come to hope for the world that will be to come, to not ignore either, to not ignore the weight and reality of sin, but also to not lose hope for what is to come. Because in light of the gospel, and Ezekiel as our example, we really have a greater understanding or a way in which that we can look at the world around us and not lose hope. Ezekiel and Daniel, all the prophets really, and Jesus as well, are able to enter into this world and speak truth in such a way that enables us to be honest, honest with ourselves and our sin, honest with the world around us, to have genuine repentance and to have a genuine hope. Because when you think about the reality of Scripture, of this message of the gospel that Ezekiel believed, that Jesus proclaimed and secured for us, if my identity in Christ is secure, if nothing can change that identity, I am a citizen of heaven. I have a king. I have a home. I have a family. I have been purchased and redeemed at infinite price. My standing and my status cannot be changed. If that's true, I'm now set free to be honest. I'm set free to honestly critique my culture and my nation without it reflecting on me and my status. I can honestly say, right? I can honestly look at sin. I can honestly bear the weight and the guilt. I can share in a cultural sin. I can point out, I can see sin for sin without having it be attached to me. I don't have to make any fights. I don't have to fight to condemn people of past generations, nor do I have to fight to redeem people of past generations. I don't have to make either of those two extremes. Rather, I'm free in myself to rest in God's goodness and his grace and to honestly reckon with sin. Sins in others, and sins in myself. And also, if I believe in the gospel, if I really believe and know that one day all things will be made new, all things will be made right, that one day the poor and the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, will be cared for and will be lifted up, that one day this kingdom of God will really be here in its fullness. If I know that that's the true arc of human history, where this is going, I'm set free in this life to have hope for that life that's to come. It inspires and it instills in us a desire for that kingdom. It gives us the motivation that we need 
to live lives that pursue that kingdom, that aren't constantly up and down and moving around trying to be on the right side of whatever the political football is at the time or the debates, you know, trying to make sure that we're working on the right things at the right time. Rather, I know everything will work out. And I know who my king is. I know who my God is. And he is the God of the oppressed. That's one of the most striking things of the Bible. God continually refers to himself when he wants to give his job title, when he refers to himself to others, he most consistently refers to himself as the God of the oppressed, the God of the fatherless, the God of the widow, the God of the sojourner and of the migrant. That's who he is. So for those of us who are in positions of privilege and power and abundance and riches, right? God is continually, by his very nature and by what he cares for and loves, calling us to care for what he cares for. The gospel inspires in us as a people, as families, as a church, a life of shalom a life of justice and peace, not just individual acts, not just making sure that we have done this or said that, posted this, been at this. Our world today and culture then and now is constantly clamoring for us to do things and to do things now and in this way or in that way to make sure that we are demonstrating to the to everybody around us what kind of person we are, ultimately trying to justify and earn our own righteousness. The Bible is telling us that we have been justified, we have been redeemed, and that Christ is the God of the poor and the powerless. That God is the one who will be the one who redeems and saves all things. And we get to join him and work with him in this redemption. Our whole lives become lives of justice. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, which I highly recommend, uh, describes how you know, justice needs to, is, becomes a way of thinking. You think of justice all the time. It becomes the lens through which we start to view the world. If you struggle with thinking of justice, if you struggle with thinking of how to live in this world, right? Take a cue from scripture, from Ezekiel, from the gospels, from Paul. We, as we marinate ourselves in the promises of God and in the truth of who he is and of what he has done and what he will do, our heart is softened and changed. And we will start to care more about this world. We will look at our world and our lives with new lenses. We will see the areas and the places that God has called us to, and we will walk in the way that he has called us to walk. All of us have areas in our lives that require justice, that require peace. 
And he has equipped us to do that work. Our problem is that we get distracted by what the world is calling us to, by what the world tells us is peace and justice, uh, by what the world is calling us to ignore. We need more of the prophets in our lives, like Ezekiel, who call us back to God's law, who call us back to a life of shalom and a life of justice and of peace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love and of your mercy. Lord, we acknowledge and confess how often we are forgetful of you and of your love and of your grace and how often we are quick to mistreat others whom we have power over. Lord, you redeemed us and cared for us when no one else did. Who are we that you would love us so much and then that we would turn around and not show that same love and kindness to others? Lord, thank you that you are over all things and are working all things according to your plan because if it was up to us, this would not be working. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us in your spirit to live lives of peace, to live lives of justice. Lord, to pursue your will in all things. Lord, be with us and lead us. In your name we pray. Amen. See you all again soon.